Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball. So expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and a true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is the five biggest storylines from the first week of NCAA basketball action. And there are so many top storylines, so we really shouldn't waste any more time. Jalen, let's kick it off with our first storyline with uh, the top programs being on upsettler, and there were a lot of upsets, a lot of upsets, but also a lot of near upsets. So, Jalen, let's kind of talk about those upsets and and which one was the most surprising to you? Yeah, so over the last couple of days, there's been a handful of upsets and near upsets like Ryan mentioned beforehand. And, I mean, let's just start at yesterday, right? I mean, if we just go across some of the games that took place yesterday, of course, the big one that's taking over headlines right now is Seton Hall beating Michigan, number four ranked Michigan, 67 to 65. Uh, Really solid game that came down to the wire, came down to two big missed free throws um, by Michigan to pretty much blow this game. Jared Roden leads the way for Seton Hall with 16 points. Five point uh, five rebounds. I mean, that's one of them that really stands out to me because we obviously know that Michigan has Final Four and national championship aspirations, and that's an early season loss that, granted, can be a little bit attributed to the the return of college basketball fans. Right, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but at the same time, that is not a not a good loss to have on your resume in the early goings. But like, let's even like look at some of these other like smaller games. Maybe not on a, not on a big enough scale, like Michigan being ranked so high and losing. But Iowa State they only won by eight points against Alabama State, sixty eight to sixty. Keep going further along the uh, across the board. There's situations where you have Alabama ranked number 14. They barely beat South Alabama. They only won by about five or six points. That An Alabama team that was one of the best offensive teams in the country last year is held to under 80 against South Alabama. Mad unrealistic considering the circumstances in the early stages of the season. I mean, across the board, I mean, there's a lot of interesting games that have taken place in the last couple of days. Miami barely beating Florida Atlantic was another one. That's all just yesterday. So, Ryan, I mean, realistically, through one week of college basketball, one can say that the atmosphere around NCAA basketball is definitely returning back to the hype that we're used to after coming off of some weird COVID riddled seasons. And the interesting thing to talk about is that if it's November, but it feels like March with all these upsets. Mm. And just to talk about a little more up a lot, um, many more upsets, because I don't think there's one that you could pinpoint that there was the most, that it was the most surprising, but there were a lot of them that were very close to being upsets for teams that, you would think would would win by much larger margins. Let's talk about some of those upsets or, or some of those games, should I say real quick. A 25-point game from Marcus Sasser for number 15 Houston helped defeat Hofstra in overtime. Hofstra took the 15th best team in the country to overtime. And this isn't just the 15th best team in the country. They're also a top-notch defensive team as well, and they put 75 points on them. Also looking at Rutgers getting the win over Lehigh, 73-70. It was two free throws by Geo Baker that helped seal the deal on that one. Indiana beating Eastern Michigan by six, thanks to 21 points from from, uh, Trace Jackson Davis. Xavier beating Niagara barely after 17 points off turnovers as well. I mean, you could talk about the Maryland game from a couple days ago against George Washington, that game was a lot closer than any of us thought it would be. Um, Maryland sealing, sealing the win with a with a seven-point win. But I think it's just going to be very interesting to see going forward, especially with these other programs, these other top programs, like you mentioned with Michigan's upset earlier against Buffalo. Who's going to be on upset alert next? 
Yeah, man. I think that's the big thing. You know, you talk about you talk about the circumstances. I mean, you talking you, you mentioned Maryland. Shout out Daryl Morsell, Ryan. We were talking off the pod about this. Dude has two 20-point games early in the season. Marquette's three and zero, and they took down number eleven Illinois, sixty-seven to sixty-six. I mean, across the board, it just seems like, and and Ryan, this this is might may, maybe be even more of an important point than the fans being back in the stands, which was something we were talking about off camera, as maybe just the hype around college basketball is really gassing some of these smaller program teams, some of these teams that are not ranked in the top twenty-five early. Maybe it's gassing them up, but. Ryan, the other thing we have to attribute to this is the transfer portal. I just mentioned Daryl Marcel as one of those guys who moved from Maryland to Marquette and is already making an early impact. Transfer portal, the transfer portal this past offseason was like NBA free agency on steroids with a little bit of crack mixed in. Like it was legitimately one of the craziest things we've ever seen in terms of player movement and between the eligibility um rules changing slightly um, in terms of being able to play immediately after transferring and more importantly, the extended year. That's been another thing that's been really important too. We've got some of these teams that have been together for three, four years. Now they're extending to five years. We've got seven years, super seniors, super duper seniors, I guess we got to call them now. Like, I mean, across the board, bro, basketball, NCAA basketball is, is, really uh, like eclipsing a lot of the past seasons we've had in recent memory. And that's a scary thought through only three or like three or so games into the season, considering the fact that things are only going to get crazier once conference play starts. And you also mentioned a lot of the top 25 upsets. We mentioned Michigan earlier. You talked about Illinois losing to Marquette. Navy beat Virginia on the road. They knocked off number 25 Virginia on the road in what was an impressive effort um, from the midshipmen. And I think that was their first top 25 win in what seems like forever. So I, I think it's it was very interesting to see how the first week of college basketball kind of set the tone for the rest of the season. Because it seems like wherever you're ranked, no team is safe. And I think that's going to be the big message going forward. And a lot of these, and I give a lot of credit to teams like UC Riverside, teams like Eastern Michigan, George Washington, some of these programs that don't get a lot of attention, putting these top-tier programs on notice. And I think that's going to be very interesting to see going forward. But let's talk about our second topic, because as much as the upset alerts really change things uh, in, in the opening week, we saw a lot of new faces. Uh, from this freshman class, Chet Holmgren from Gonzaga made his debut. Paolo Benchero for Duke made his debut as well. Trevor Keels also made his debut for Duke. Patrick Baldwin for the University of Milwaukee. I think that there's, there's so many new faces that it's hard to really pinpoint one that has been really good, that has been really good so far because all of them so far have been great. So, Jalen, let's kind of talk about some of these new faces and and who has impressed you the most so far. Yeah, man. So the race for the number one pick in the NBA draft, right, is a is a really tricky one this year. A lot of guys that are debuting um, as freshmen primarily for these teams are coming off of a year, maybe two of not really playing high school basketball like that. Right. These are guys who were doing most of the damage in the AAU circuit. And even most of those tournaments, most of those circuits were shut down early or shut down completely due to COVID circumstances. So this is our first real chance in a while to see these guys hoop. They might be completely different than what they were projected on, uh, projected as based on their high school tape. They might be the exact same player. They might be, a, a, you know, they might be a mold of new age and whatever we've already seen. Lord knows, you know, depending on where you are as a scout in these circumstances, because you're probably running around like a chicken with your head cut off trying to figure out, you know, the the uh, upside of these guys but let's get a little bit more specific like you you mentioned a couple of guys that I feel like are a great starting point right Paulo Benchero for Duke arguably 
the number one pick right now based off a lot of mock drafts, 17 points per game, 8.5 rebounds per game. The dude is shooting uh, 85% from the free throw line, which has been really good considering circumstances. Not as great of a shooter as most were gassing him up to be coming into the season, but the fluidness is still there. He's playing on defense. He had, he's averaging 1.5 steals so far through, through, um, through four games. So, I mean, have to show you know him respect. His Duke partner in crime, so to speak, so far in the freshman class has actually been Trevor Keels, a guy who did not get too much gas coming into the season. The dude is uh, a Mack truck, dude. At 6'4", 220 pounds, dude is mad physical, plays through contact, loves initiating contact. He's averaging nearly 15 points per game, four rebounds, three assists. Um, and the the striking thing to me is that he's shooting nearly 40% from three as well. I think that's something that really is standing out for this Duke team is the way that he stepped up at the guard position. I think that's huge. You go across the board, bro, I'm going to kind of hand it off to you. But Memphis is Jalen Duran, like you mentioned beforehand, uh, University of Milwaukee's Patrick Baldwin. That's going to be an interesting guy to watch all season because he's not playing in your prototypical top five pick in the league type of uh, NCAA program with the University of Milwaukee. You know, for a guy like him, you'd expect a a Kansas, a Memphis aforementioned, a Kentucky, but he is at a way uh, lower weight class, so to speak, in terms of the competition around him. But it's going to be important that because he's around such lesser competition that he really balls out. So far, he's averaging 19 points and 11 rebounds. He's only played a game, so uh, we'll see how that builds upon, but There's that Kennedy Chandler for Tennessee, Jabari Smith, who's been hooping for Auburn. I mean, the freshman class, bro, I'm not going to lie. It's bonkers. I didn't even mention Chet. I know you're going to go in on how Chet Holgren's been going low-key bananas, despite the fact that he hasn't been putting up crazy points. He's been leaving that to his man, Drew Timmy. But, geez, man, you're not lying about this freshman class going dumb. I think the big thing specifically with Chet Holmgren is that I don't think Gonzaga is going to rely on him heavily to put up points because they have people around him that can do that, right? Drew mm-hmm. Timmy was one of them. I mean, if you look at his his superstar season last year, this was a guy who was a top scorer, also considered to be a top draft pick last year, and he decided to stick around with Gonzaga on what is arguably an even better team than last year. Also, when you look at Hunter Salas as a top prospect, he's looking pretty good so far as well for this Gonzaga team. And I think Chet's role is pretty defined. You go out there, you attack the boards, and you block shots. Uh-huh. When, you're, when you are averaging four block shots a game and eight rebounds, that shows you that you're a defensive presence. That shows you that you're a defensive stopper. And seven at seven feet tall, this guy is just dominating the paint for Gonzaga so far. And obviously you don't need him to point, put up the points. So I think the big thing going forward for Chet is just be the defensive stopper that Gonzaga asks you to be, because he's doing just that seven block shots in his first game, two in his second game, three in his third game, grabbing rebounds as well with 13 in his first game, five in his second game, six in his third game. I think that's going to be the big thing going forward. Just be a defensive stopper. Now, looking at, at some of these other prospects, Paulo Banchero looked great in his, in his debut against Duke. And him, along with Trevor Keels and Wendell Moore, I think are going to be this big trio that a lot of people should have their, high, have their eyes on. I know there's a lot of talk about Paulo Banchero because of the talent that he has and also the fact that he's going to be the, possibly the number one overall pick. But do not sleep on Trevor Keels and Wendell Moore because these two guys can just straight up play basketball. And these two guys are are really going to change the game for Duke. And I wouldn't be surprised if they find themselves in the conversation for ACC Player of the Year very early, especially with the amount of talent that that, uh, Duke has in general. But quickly about Patrick Baldwin before I kind of throw it back to you. I think the big thing with him is that because he's not at a big time school, he has the chance to put Milwaukee on on the map in a national spotlight. And Patrick Baldwin's doing just that so far in his first game, averaging a double double so far for the season with 19 points and 11 assists, like you mentioned. 
Not that great shooting from the field, only 35%, but expect that to get better. I think that the big thing for him, if he can have an Anthony Edwards type impact, like Anthony Edwards had at Georgia, being able to put uh, University of Georgia basketball back on the map, I think that's going to be something that Patrick Baldwin could be credited with, having an Anthony Edwards type impact, putting Milwaukee back on the map or putting Milwaukee on the map for the, for the first time, possibly bringing new eyes to the program. So I think that's really what his intention was going to Milwaukee instead of going to a top program like Duke or Kentucky. Yeah. And to just build off of that for the Panthers, I mean, the biggest thing for him is the impact that he's going to have. I mean, you talked about his like efficiency stats. He was seven of 20. We only have one game like, you know, of sample size so far for Milwaukee, seven of 20 in that game. You have to think about it. This guy is a projected top pick. I'll talk about his actual NBA draft status to a certain extent um, in a minute, but he's a potential top pick on a team that from a talent perspective, everybody else around him is not really in the stratosphere talent wise as he is. So the inefficient shooting splits are not super crazy considering the circumstances he's under in terms of he is the guy and, for the Panthers, he might be their only real, you know, form of offense. We'll have to see how that goes throughout the rest of the season. And if he's just going to be this dominant heliocentric player for the Panthers, or if they're going to try to be able to make him a little bit more of a facilitator and take advantage of the fact that he gets so much attention on him. But again, like I mentioned before, right now, if you go to take a thon, he's projected to go number six overall to the Minnesota Timberwolves. He's a top 10 talent standing at 6'9", uh, 220 pounds. He's got the jumper. He's He's got, I mean, he's got the handle. He's going to be an interesting player to watch this season. The guy that, that stands out to me the most, I mentioned him briefly earlier, Jabari Smith for um, Auburn. This is a really like, this is a really center heavy class. You know, we already mentioned Chet. We already talked about Paulo. Uh, we can talk about Jalen Durant from Memphis a little bit too, if you want to, but it's a really center heavy class. And right now Jabari Smith is um, inserting himself into that top three conversation right now. Again, going back to Tankathon's rankings, the top four guys to go in the draft based on Tankathon right now, Paulo Benchero, Chet Holmgren, Jabari Smith, and Jalen Durant. That's that's the top. That's the top four of the top five picks in the draft. Jabari Smith right now, 6'10", 220 pounds, 15.5 points per game, eight rebounds per game, 2.5 assists through two games. And the big thing is he didn't have a great like opening night. He didn't have a great opening night a night against Morehouse, um, but or against Morehead State, excuse me. But against UL Monroe, he came out and threw a party. In 29 minutes, he had 20, 23 points, 10 rebounds, two assists, two blocks, four steals. Two blocks and four steals stands out to me way more than the 23 points because it shows that he's getting it done on both ends of the floor. I think that's huge. Bro, truth, truth be told, when it comes to the center class, when it comes to this NBA draft class, that fight for the top spot is going to be – so competitive like last year right uh Kay Cunningham pretty much had it through and through they tried to throw little monkey wrenches here and there to make excuses for other guys but Cade was pretty much the guy penciled in this year it's it could be any of these guys I I think it's gonna be, I think the top I think there's an argument that could be made that at least the top six or seven guys are all gonna be freshmen and I don't think I could I, I think I could I think I couldn't agree with you more because I think that's the storyline going in. I think much like the rookie of the year race, or should I say uh, first first overall pick race, there isn't really a set team that's a favorite to win the national championship. You can obviously mm. point to the Gonzagas. You can obviously point to the UCLA's, the Dukes, the Kentuckys, the North Carolinas. But this year, you could easily say that there's like 15 teams that – could be national championship contenders. And one of those teams that we're going to get to right now is Texas. Now, this is a this is a topic that Jalen brought up to my attention because there are some interesting chemistry issues that um, 
you that uh Jalen pointed out to me, and I kind of want to throw it to Jalen for a second because Texas was a team that went deep in the transfer portal. They got a lot of great players. They got Marcus Carr from Minnesota, who was their star player, Christian Bishop from Creighton, who was their top rebounder, Trey Mitchell, who has a lot of upside as a seven-footer coming over from UMass. Also, Devin Askew, a young player from uh, Kentucky that transferred over. He definitely has a lot of potential, especially on the uh, the Texas bench. What was it about Texas that was so interesting to you specifically for this episode? Okay, so uh, I'm glad that we kind of introduced it as them working out the kinks, basically, as the way that me and you discussed this when coming up with this topic. And it has a lot to do with what you just listed off in terms of all the transfers. Me and you, when we talked about this, one of the bigger things that we mentioned is like, we know that Texas easily got the the best transfer in the portal talent-wise, at least most would argue, in Marcus Carr at the guard position. They also pretty much got the best, I wouldn't call him free agent coach because that's not really how it went down, but picking up Chris Beard from Texas Tech was huge. This is a cultural culture creator at the head coaching spot. He brought in a completely new staff, his staff, you know, his handpicks the staff, and this is a guy who has flirted with a national championship, I believe, two, two of the last three seasons or so, been at least in uh, Elite Eight the last two to three seasons or somewhere in that vicinity. This is a guy who win, who who at the head coach spot helps win you ball games. When you have a handful of transfers like this, and it's expected, this is one of the first times we've ever seen this kind of significant movement in one singular offseason in college basketball. It's going to take some time to establish that. One of the bigger things that takes place with this is with all the guys you mentioned, they're all coming from situations outside of maybe Devin Askew. They're all coming from situations where they either nearly average double digits or did average double digits as a primary scoring option for their former team. Going from being the guy to being a part of a talented deep team, I think it caused them to play really um, unselfishly almost to a fault. I think this stood out more in the Gonzaga game where they struggled to score. Marcus Carr could barely get off. It seemed like he was being kind of passive. And they, you know, they, they obviously stepped up in their second game um, against against HBU, but it's kind of one of those things where I feel like they're going to be a team we really need to keep an eye out on in the Big 12 because when they start to get that chemistry percolating, I think that they're going to be one of the, the most dangerous teams in the, in the country once all the talent clicks. That's not even factoring in that Dylan DeSue, who they got from Vanderbilt in the transfer portal, who's like, a, a legit six eight forward who can shoot the rock score in a hurry. He's not a, he's not even on the floor for them yet. He's still out due to injury. When he comes back, this team is going to get even deeper and even more talented. And I think when you look at this Texas team, there's no doubt that they have national championship written all over it, especially with the amount of talent that they acquired through the transfer portal. And like you mentioned, we really haven't seen much of Dylan DeSue either. And we will most likely see him for a good majority of the season this year. But I think I made this point with Maryland in my Maryland breakdown, uh, which you can see every Monday on Hoop Talks, uh, Hoop Talks Instagram. I think the interesting thing about acquiring so much talent is that it takes time to gel. And the one thing I mentioned with Maryland, and I could probably make this point with Texas as well, is that I think if you're a Texas basketball fan, patience is a virtue. I think you have to be patient with these young, with these players, with this team to take time to gel. I think the one thing the Gonzaga game showed me is that they can really be competitive with these top programs. And I think the first game was a good sample size of what kind of talent Texas has to work with and also kind of worked out some of their chemistry issues. But I think the Gonzaga game showed you the one positive I would take away from it is that the talent that they have will help you win a lot of games and will help you possibly win a conference tournament and possibly help you win a national championship. And I think when you when you stay competitive with a Texas, with a, should I say, Gonzaga team, 
that what's the national championship this year or what's the national championship last year and, and stocked up with a lot more talent than they had last year. I think the interesting thing going forward, how can Texas continue to play? How, how well will Texas continue to play even without these chemistry issues? Because again, we're still early in the season. So I think the big thing for Texas going forward if they can work out some of their chemistry issues, I think that they are absolutely national championship contenders. If chemistry continues to be a problem, though, this is a team that could fall anywhere between the bottom 25, possibly out of the top 25, or even worse, have a below 500 or uh, have a below 500 record like Kentucky did last year because Kentucky had a lot of continuity issues as well. Yeah, so, I mean, my final points on Texas, and this is going to be, like, my main um, – the the main point that – the main point that I'm going to lean into when it comes to Texas moving forward is this. As this team continues to get better and continues to gel, they are going to get more and more dangerous because they have the talent depth to do so. I think Marcus, Marcus Carr has the chance to be Big 12 Player of the Year or at least in that conversation for first team. I'm going to put it like this. I'm going to just make the early prediction right now, and I don't think it's a very bold one. I think that if this this team clicks, and I think they will in the next couple of games, I'm just going to predict it now. I think that Texas is going to win the Big 12. I'm going to take them to win the Big 12 over Baylor, who's coming off of a national championship. And we haven't even mentioned the fact that the Big 12 is still a really deep conference. If you think about who – and what and what Texas is working with in this conference, you're talking about Baylor, who won the national championship last year, but they lost a good amount of talent. They lost Davion Mitchell in the draft. They lost Jared Butler as well in the draft. Then you also look at Kansas, who stocked up as well through the transfer portal by getting Remy Martin from Arizona State. He's looked pretty good in his first couple of games with Kansas as well. Oklahoma State has come out as possibly one of the more surprising teams, uh, especially with what happened and losing Cade Cunningham last season, or and, and losing Cade Cunningham to the NBA draft, should I say. Um, th- there's just the Big 12 is such an interesting conference that you you can pinpoint who are the top contenders to win the national championship this year, or not the na- national championship, the Big 12 championship this year. But I think it's going to ultimately come down to who can play their best in conference play because. If Texas can pull out a lot of wins in conference play, they'll definitely assert themselves early and set the tone um, that they are the favorites to win this conference. We can't really sleep on Kansas or Baylor either, which makes it a lot tougher to think about. And then also there are teams like Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Kansas, Kansas State. Um, The list goes on and on. I think the Big 12 is just such an interesting conference that there could be a lot of big-time players in there. Yeah, I think when you look across the board right now, based on the early goings, um, the SEC for sure, who only has like two losses as a conference on their resume through one week of basketball, them and the Big 12, they look like the most competitive. Last year, Ryan, we kept pounding the table saying the Big 10 looks like the best conference in NCAA basketball. Well, this year... Things are starting a little rough for the Big Ten, and I think that one of these two conferences between the SEC and the Big 12 might end up asserting themselves as the as the better conference over the Big Ten this year. The question is going to be who. Right now, it looks like the SEC, but I guess, like you said beforehand, with the talent pool that, that the Big 12 has, it's going to be a dogfight for which conference really is the best one by the end of the year. And speaking of conferences and Continuing on with this national championship talk, let's talk about the two best teams right now in the NCAA, which are or which is Gonzaga and UCLA. So they're really displaying on or they're really displaying early on in the season how good they are with the amount of talent that each team has. Gonzaga went deep in the transfer portal. They also acquired or they also um so we also saw the debuts of Hunter Salas and Chet Holmgren, who were two top prospects um, in the 2021 uh, freshman class. You also look at UCLA, who pretty much returned all of their team from last year, with the exception of Chris Smith, who was out with 
uh, injury for most of the season last year and was their top scorer to that point in the season. Um, but this UCLA team and the Gonzaga team as and, and Gonzaga as well, they look poised for a national championship run. UCLA made it to the final four last year and lost to Gonzaga on a buzzer beater by Jalen Suggs. Gonzaga lost to Baylor and it just seemed like they looked outmatched throughout the entire game because Baylor's defense came to play. Davion Mitchell was laying up the floor with some threes. I just think it's going to be so interesting how these two teams and their seasons play out. And not to mention Gonzaga and UCLA play each other this season. So Jalen, what do you expect from Gonzaga and UCLA this year, given what they accomplished last season? Okay, so let's start with Gonzaga. I think Gonzaga is in a similar circumstance to where they were last year in terms of being the potential undefeated team by the end of the year. Now, it gets a little tricky when you start talking about conference play for them because, you know, BYU is always an interesting squad in the WCC, and that that's always the, you know, low-hanging fruit team when it comes to Gonzaga in terms of, you know, being one-off. Now, like you mentioned beforehand, they did schedule themselves a little bit more difficult this year. It'll be really interesting to see how they match up against UCLA this year. But they've got the, when I say that they have the chance to go the undefeated route, similar to how they did last season, they might not have the top lottery pick talent across the board that they had, you know, every position they had a guy that could potentially go in the top 10, right? They had Corey Kisper at the three, they had Jalen Suggs who ended up going number five overall. Um, and then obviously they were in a circumstance where you could argue that Drew Timmy, although he might not have been seen as a, a high NBA prospect, he was arguably one of the best players in college basketball, right? Repeat that this year. Drew Timmy drops 37 on Texas, eats, completely goes bonkers. He's still their, uh, their lead guy down low for them. Chet Holmgren, who is projected to be a top five pick, top two res of right now, although he's not standing out in the points um, the points um, part of the, the spreadsheet, eight rebounds leads the team. Um, like you mentioned earlier beforehand, four blocks per game, which is insane. I think he debuted with seven blocks, which like ties – the, uh, the the program record for um, a player in a game. And then we got to think about some of the depth that they have on the squad as well. When you look at Julian, Julian Strother for them, um, you mentioned Salas, Andrew Nimhard, Nolan Hickman, who's a part of that freshman class you mentioned beforehand at the guard position as well. Uh, Anton Watson, like it, the list goes on and on. Anton leads them in steals with 2.3 steals per game. And more importantly, the depth is crazy. The depth is literally nuts to nuts to the point that they have at least like I think at least eight or nine guys playing 14 to 15 minutes or greater. So when it comes to Gonzaga, the depth is nuts. And I think it's really just going to come down to health with them more than anything. I will mention this, though. Ryan, you mentioned them playing UCLA. Well, they also play Duke the game right after. They play Alabama the following week or about a week and some change after that. They've got BYU late in the season, who always is an interesting matchup. And they've got um, uh, St. Mary's towards the end of the season, which will be an interesting one, too, just because you never know when you get that close to the tournament who's playing desperate. So that goes to say that although I'm talking about them potentially being a quote-unquote undefeated team by the end of the season – they legitimately have a handful of interesting tests along the way. I wouldn't sleep on them having to face on Texas Tech um, on, on December 18th as well. They've got some interesting matchups this year that could tell us a lot about who they are as a team in terms of national championship or how much more they need to maybe build upon considering some of these other teams might have gotten just as good as they did over the course of one offseason. Their schedule does not get any easier going forward until conference play. I think that, you know, e even though they play BYU, I think BYU is going to be their toughest opponent in conference play because of the amount of talent that they have on their team. But I think when you're looking at their non-conference schedule, they definitely 
built a tough schedule going forward. UCLA take, uh, taking on second-ranked UCLA, seventh-ranked Duke, 14th-ranked Alabama. They're also taking on other uh, programs in the in the big in the in the Power Five conferences, should I say, um, with Washington and Texas Tech as well. Um, you're looking at this team in Gonzaga, and it's so interesting because I even forgot I even forgot to mention another player that they acquired through the transfer portal, and he was Iowa State's top scorer or one of their top scorers in Rasir Bolton. And mm-hmm. I think that's that was such a great acquisition because of what he provides on the offensive side. He's also been shooting the ball very well for them this season so far, um, nearly 62% shooting from the field. But you look at it, I think the thing with Gonzaga and UCLA in their matchup is which team with the most talent will prevail? Because there's no there's no doubt that both these teams have talented players. But I think when you look at both teams, especially with UCLA schedule as well, because UCLA just came off a huge win against Villanova. But then you look at their game against Long Beach State. That had the potential for upset alert. If you look at the halftime score, UCLA only led by three at the half. They were up 48 to 45. And Long Beach State was really putting them to the test. Joel Murray had or Joel Murray had a good game. Colin Slater ended up with 27 points in that game. You look at both teams, and both these teams early on in the season have been tested by some really good teams. And I think Gonzaga, there could be a game on this season where a Central Michigan or a Texas Tech or a Washington could come out of nowhere and put them on put them on upset alert, like like we saw with a lot of the teams early this season, like Indiana and Maryland and Michigan with uh with them playing Buffalo early on the season. So I think for their matchup specifically, it's going to be about talent and which team with the most talent can prevail. But I think looking ahead in each of their seasons, especially with the way the Long Beach State game happened with UCLA, there's a chance that either one of these teams could end up with a loss early on in non-conference play. I feel like that's pretty fair. I mean, that that's a that's a tough argument. I think the you know the the early loss outside of them facing each other, obviously, um, it's not really there for either one of them. Just out of the fact, at least from what I see, maybe Colorado in terms of UCLA, but I mean, outside of Gonzaga, for me, UCLA's first real test is on December eighteenth against UNC. Uh, number number 18th ranked UNC. And similar to what I was saying about Gonzaga, UCLA also played up pretty well in terms of their scheduling. Some of it is done pretty evenly just out of the fact that their conference is so strong. They've got number 12 Oregon twice, one of those games coming in the last three games of the season. Um, number 25 USC, who we're probably going to talk about a little bit later on, who's ranked 25 in the country, and they faced them twice late in the season, including their very last game of the season being against USC, excuse me. So between um, in-conference play and those non-conference matchups between Gonzaga and UNC, I think that the best thing that I can say about both of these teams is that they're going to get tested. We're going to learn a lot about them early. We're going to learn even more about them late. And I think the most important thing is I think there can be an argument made that the national player of the year is going to be picked between these two teams. That might seem like a bold take, depending on the circumstances, considering the the strength of Duke in terms of the, 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 the caliber of players they have. There's a couple of interesting guys in Kentucky across the board. There's a, there's a couple of names that could be named out, but I think at the end of the day, the national player of the year is going to come from one of these two squads in Gonzaga and UCLA. So it's going to, re- I think it's going to be really interesting what we learn about them um, as we go across the season. And those ranked opponent matchups are going to tell us way more than the conference match than the, uh, the other in conference matchups for sure. I think you could argue with UCLA schedule with the way Marquette's been playing. Marquette could be their next mm-hmm. toughest matchup outside of Gonzaga. But let me ask you this because there's a lot of talent with these two teams, no question about it. National Player of the Year candidate, one per each team. Okay. 
who do you believe is in contention for it? So I think the easy ones to go with are Drew Timmy and Johnny Juzang. If I had to put them in order, top five between these two teams, I would probably go Timmy. I'll probably go Timmy, Juzang. And then from there, it gets a little tricky, but I'm going to do it like this. I'm going to say Timmy, Juzang. I think Chet starts to assert himself. And he does it on both ends of the floor, which I think is huge. I'm going to go with Jaime Hawkins at number four. And then at number five, I think it gets a little tricky, but I'm going to go with Andrew Nemhart just because of the guard position. He, he's that guy for them, and I think he's going to play a huge role in closing games. He's going to continue, I should say, to play a huge role in, play, in closing games for them. So between those two squads, it would be those two. I would just say for UCLA squad wise, this isn't talking about national player of the year or anything, but two guys to watch out for sure. Jalen Clark, who has been playing really solid on both ends of the floor. He is really taking up um, a, a role on the defensive end for this UCLA team. And the other one is Cody Riley, who went down early. He went down in the first game. He's going to come back later on in the season. He's going to be an interesting guy as a rim protector for them. That was the one thing they were missing in the game against Gonzaga. That was one of the bigger things that they were missing out on last season, and they addressed it by picking up Cody Riley in the offseason. Peyton Watson's another interesting one, but Cody Riley, Jalen Clark, those are two guys for UCLA. I know everybody wants to talk about Jaime and uh, and talk about Johnny, but those two guys are going to be really important to uh, this UCLA team moving forward. I think if I had to rank a top five, I would definitely put Johnny Juzang at number one. I think Chet barely edges out Drew Timmy toward the end of the season because I think the big thing for Chet is him asserting himself more offensively. We really haven't seen a lot of him offensively, but the opening game showed how versatile he is on both sides of the floor. Getting it done offensively and attacking the boards, defensively also getting it done as a stopper and blocking shots. I think he'll really assert himself more offensively, but continue to be consistent on defense. And then I think Timmy at three, I'm going to go with Hami Hawkes as well at four. Tiger Campbell, I think will be a sneaky one at five. If I had to, if I had to just stick between Gonzaga and UCLA, Tiger Campbell showed me a lot uh, in the first couple of games this season. And even last season, not only as a three point shooter, but as a facilitator as well for this team. So I think, it's going to be interesting to see if there will be a UCLA player or a Gonzaga player that ends up in this conversation more. I think the top two um, have to be Jai Juzang. I would also agree in having to say um, I'm also oh, like forgot I had the phone. Yeah. So I think the big thing, I think at number one, I would definitely have to say Jai Juzang. Two, I think Chet Holmgren. I think True Timmy definitely finds himself in this race as well. But moving on to our last topic, and we talked about the surprises early on in the season. There were definitely a lot of surprise teams, to say the least. You could argue UC Riverside is a surprise team based off their upset win against Arizona, against Arizona State on the road. We could argue that Navy is a surprise team who put up a a pretty good fight against Louisville and also upset Virginia on the road. So, Jalen, who's a surprise team that you are that you are watching out for early on the early on this season? So for me, it's it's been USC um, in a really like not super crazy way like I know they're ranked um top 25 in the country I know they're like literally at 25 at the moment right now which is important to note when talking about the caliber of play that they're showing off early this is not a team that's coming yes they lost Evan Mobley who ended up going um you know top three but this is not a team that's coming back with a lack of talent by any stretch right Boogie Ellis transfers there from Memphis and leads the team right now with 16.3 points per game, 3.7 rebounds, 4.2, uh, 4.3 assists, nearly two steals a game, shooting like 56% from the floor. Dude shooting 45% from three, too. Not on crazy volume or anything, but I think it just goes to show you that he was a little trapped under all of the uh, 
top class in the country hype that was taking place when he went to when he first enrolled to Memphis. But then you go across the board, Isaiah Mobley, Evan Mobley's brother, 12.3, uh, 12.3 points per game, 8.7 rebounds to lead the team. Um, three assists per game, showing off a little bit of that passing as well. And he's shooting a pretty uh, decent clip, 46% on low volume again from three-point land as well. Last but not least, you've got uh, Chavance Goodwin. I hope I pronounced his name correctly. 15.7 points per game, seven rebounds a game on 67% shooting, nearly 68. I mean, they've just – the thing with, with them for me was not necessarily me being surprised by them being 3-0 and through three games. It's more so just seeing them playing so well early on considering the fact that they were such a – an Evan Mobley heavy team last year, I would say in terms of where they really produced, right? On the defensive end, he was their main anchor. Offensively, they played through his ability to pass out of the, out of the block. The fact that he was a guy who created opening spot, spots for them. And I mean, they were just a guard heavy, like a, a ball, a ball dominant guard heavy team last year. So to see things played a lot more through the front court this year, with Goodwin and, uh, and Mobley, and of course Ellis running the show, but Goodwin and Mobley down low doing most of the dirty work for this team. I think that's the most intriguing thing to me is that they switched from being a guard dominant team that also got a lot of plays through Evan Mobley, just simply off of the fact that he was so talented to now this being a team that's leaning heavier into their front court, being a, a big part of what they do um, on both sides of the floor. And I think the big thing looking forward to USC season, will Boogie Ellis be consistent? And I think mm. Boogie Ellis is for sure going to be a top, is going to be a top player in the Pac-12. I think you can make the argument that he ends up in the Pac-12 player of the year race as well with the way he's been playing. And if he, and same thing, if he can be consistent, I think um, going forward, I mean, he's going to be a big time player in the NBA or in the uh in the NCAA, especially in the Pac-12. But um, I think I think the big thing with my surprise team is just pulling off surprises. And I think um, my surprise team is Marquette. And I love the way Marquette's been playing so far. 3-0, we've been talking about them for a good portion of the episode. And I think the one thing that it has impressed me about Marquette is the – the coaching ability of Shaka Smart. I think Shaka Smart being able to take over early and assert himself in the Big East, I think that's going to be something interesting to see going forward. But what I like about Marquette is that they is is their win against Illinois because Daryl Morsell, Maryland transfer, looked great in that game. He's averaging over 20 points a game uh, scoring-wise. Um but I think the big thing going forward when you're looking at Marquette is the development of their big men because Shaka Smart is a, is a coach that has a history of developing big men. And I think when you look at one of the best big men on this team, it's got to be Justin Lewis, who is a Baltimore guy from Baltimore, Maryland, uh, 6'7", 245 pounds, averaging 17 points a game. And it's definitely up from what he's been putting up last year. In 21 games with the program, Last year, he was only averaging about three points a game. This year, averaging about 17 points a game. So that's a huge increase in points per game. Also, same with rebounds as well. He's averaging um, a steal a game, uh, or should I say about a steal a game. And he's just looked impressive overall. And I wouldn't be, I went, and I'm not surprised with the reputation that Shaka Smart has with building up big men that Justin Lewis is performing as well as he is. Yeah, man. I mean, even when you look at this team, Tyler Kolek at the, guard, at the guard position for them is nearly tripled in his assist totals from last season to this, this season. Last season, 2.3. This season, 5.7. I mean, Shaka Smart is doing something that only a handful of coaches can do, which is turn players into the best versions of themselves, right? Daryl Morcel was a defensive stopper for the Terrapins. Now he's the leading scorer for the Golden Eagles. Uh, Lewis, like you mentioned beforehand, was a guy who was not much of a scorer by any stretch last season. It wasn't even that great of a rebounder, despite that probably being his best asset for the team last year. 
And like you said before, it jumps from 7.8 points per game to 17 this season, jumps from 5.4 rebounds um, last season to 8.7 rebounds this year. More impressively, it's a short sample size on short uh, on on um, not too many attempts, but he's jumped from 57.7% from the free throw line up to 81.8. That's another really huge thing because free throws, speaking of the Illinois game, free throws are what? pretty much came down to that game being won by, goal, by the Golden Eagles. In this case, that's going to be one of those things that wins them games, especially in conference down the stretch when games are tight or when they're playing against ranked opponents like Illinois, for example. That's going to be important. So the fact that Shaka Smart has had this big of an impact on two players this early in the season is so important. And Ryan, more importantly than that, they're playing about eight to nine guys, right, uh, consistently. Of a 10, of, so they have eight guys, they have 10 guys on the roster and they're playing eight guys at least 15 minutes or more. That means pretty much their whole roster is playing is on the floor and giving them quality minutes. I think that might even be the most impressive thing out of all of this is that they're getting quality minutes from just about their entire roster top to bottom. And that's one of those things that's going to be important throughout the grind of an NCAA season because when you play 30 plus games, that depth is really going to be impactful on not only winning against big rank opponents, but even against those potential sleeper teams that can catch you lacking, right? That's going to be one of those situations where some of your league guys can't can't seem to put the ball in the basket. You have the depth on the second unit to be able to maybe overcome that. And if not maintain a lead, maybe even help push a lead. So it's, I, I think that, like you said, this is a really impressive squad so far and, the fact that Shaka Smart, again, has been able to have this kind of impact so early, I think just kind of is a testament to his caliber of coaching, considering how many programs he's impacted in the last couple of seasons. And I think with his ability to turn around VCU, I think I, I think with his ability in turning around VCU, I'm not surprised with how Marquette's doing with Shaka Smart at the helm and expect to see Justin Lewis as a big time name in the big East. And I think going forward, Marquette could end up being a big time player in this conference, but transitioning to our question of the day for our fans, who is a surprise team so far in the season that has really impressed you? This has been a great episode today on the hoop talk podcast. Of course, make sure we subscribe to us on Apple. You rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. We will see you guys next episode. Peace.